Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. Welcome or welcome back if you've been with us before. You can check out everything that we've done before. BureauofLostCulture.com Here we are again in search of everything counterculture, underground, half forgotten, half remembered, rare oral testimonies and histories from the other side. Every single show, of course, is special and every single guest is special. But today we've got a very, very special guest. Me. In case you're wondering, that's narcissistic, Kirsten. The reason is, I've got a book out which I'm shamelessly puffing, and the book is called Bone Music. It's a history of the Soviet records of forbidden music cut onto X-ray during the Cold War era. You may have heard me talk about it before, in which case you could skip through this, but it's a bit different this year because the new book, Bone Music, which is just published by Strange Tractor Press, is an expanded uh, hidden history of this time, and it also includes completely new material about the very strange X-ray underground archivist culture of Budapest in the 1930s, and possibly a story of the man who invented the X-ray technique himself. I'm going to be interviewed by my friend Travis Elber, a cultural commentator, historian and author in his own right of many, many books. How many books is it now, Trav? <laughs> a couple or so. So we're going to swap round. I'm going to sort of go on the other side of the microphone. Travis is going to come on this side. Travis, welcome back. The last time you were here, we were talking about spectacles. I was. The countercultural history of spectacles. Yeah. And before that, we were talking about the bootleg vinyl records. We were talking about bootlegs. So there's a, a link there to yeah. our, our current mode of topic yeah. and, uh, and your latest book. Mm. And well, I guess we're also talking about hearing and listening and the desire mm. to hear things which authorities may not want us to hear. Right. Should we do it? Let's go for it. Okay. Okay. So then, mm. your new book is called Bone Music, and is a, a sort of a sequel volume to your earlier book and exhibition and film, uh, which explored the idea of Soviet bootlegs, bootlegs in particular, which were made on X-ray plates. Um, to recap, in a sense, when did you first discover this extraordinary facet of audio technology hailing from the former Soviet Union. Well, it's a, it's a story of how, how a flea market can change your life. Or in my case, actually, how an email can change your life because I'd ended up playing with the Real Tuesday World in Russia live um, because years before, I got an email from a Russian guy saying, I've made this animation with your music in it. Is that okay? And I said, well, can I see it? And he, he sent it me and I was blown away by it. That was a guy called Alex Badovsky. And he we did this animation together for a track of mine called Bath Time in Clerkenwell. And um, it was a, the animation was a sort of massive hit in Russia. And as a consequence, um, we got invited to go and play there. And mm. I ended up playing there many times over the years. And, and our habit when we played there um, was with our Russian friends the day after the show uh, to sort of stagger you know, and hang over haze to the nearest flea market and buy some stuff to take back, you know, exotic Soviet stuff to take back to, to uh, the UK. And in one particular occasion, I came across this strange-looking record. I brought it back to London and tried to play it, and it was single-sided. That was the first thing. 78 RPM, that was the second thing. Did um, you have a player that could cope well, with those but, speeds? Because so, yeah. I'm a big fan of sort of 30s music, so yeah. I've actually, I, I, you can get a modern turntable that will... Uh, that will play at 78. Took a bit of yeah, shunting on it, thinking, what's going on? And uh, and then the, the when it when it started to kind of crackle out, it was Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock. 
Um, so it was just a kind of like, what on earth is going on here? And, you know, why does this record exist? But specifically, who made it? Why did they make it? And, and how did they make it? And the previous book um, and this is sets out to sort of answer those questions. Mm. And, and the difference between the previous book, which has you know, been out of print, was that in the meantime, I've been back to Russia several times and you know, found out quite a bit more information, corrected some of the errors that were made in that book, some of the suppositions, really, uh, and, and sort of dug a lot deeper into, you know, what I think is the true bone music. Obviously, you've said it's rock around the clock, mm. you know, of Bill Haley's great American rock and mm. roll hit, you know, with that, that uh, drum beat, which mm. sounds like a starting pistol on, on rock and roll. We should scroll right back to mm. when censorship of music starts to kick in within the Soviet republics. Yeah, so actually the, when censorship started in Russia was actually pre-revolution, so things were already being censored. There was a kind of um, proto-protest songs um, in the Tsarist regime, and there, were, there, were, there was cultural repression then. And of course what happened uh, in 1918, 17, with, the, with the revolutions is that the Soviet empire began, you know, the Tsarist empire was over. And actually they very, very quickly, they were really aware of the power of culture, and in, in the first few years... Um, it was a very exciting time because it was a bit like we've got this new society. What is its cultural uh, landscape? So there's experimentation was encouraged, and in terms of music, there was a lot of very weird, exciting, avant-garde stuff going on. You know, um, people making pieces which involved you know, massed choirs and gunshots, you know, huge horns, and you know these abstract pieces. And it was far more exciting, I think, and avant-garde than anything going on in the West. But really quickly, particularly with the ascent of Stalin, that stuff got closed down and, in fact, very quickly began to be condemned as being sort of formalist. What the new Soviet Republic needs is music that's sort of inspiring for the common man and woman, you know, simple stuff, you know, which reminds them of their roots. And, you know, to most young people's ears, very dull stuff. But... There was also, uh, as the sort of waves of, you know, repression and cultural sort of investigation came and went you know jazz was in, was brought to the soviet union you know and um and various other forms you know more swingy kind of you know klezmer type music and really through the 20s and 30s that came and went you know mm. in terms of like whether it was encouraged allowed or viciously repressed there's rules that's somewhat arbitrary on there with i think you write in the book as well there's a, a kind of greater thaw Mm. During the Second World War, where mm. obviously you know Stalin's uh, Soviet Russia is part of the sort of Allied forces, and mm. so therefore American records and things are considered acceptable for for that period. I don't know whether Stalin himself, he probably it was probably with a sort of you know wrenching of his collar and a sort of you know, lots of swallowing sort of uh, allowed them. Of course, a lot of other stuff in terms of you know, financial aid was pouring into the Soviet Union from America to help with the war effort because we were kind of on the same team, mm. briefly. So uh, along with that came these American cultural products, you know, some clothes, films, and cars, apparently. Um, and so young people could go and see, um, you know, uh, American films, like with Glenn Miller soundtrack in Moscow and Leningrad. And, and of course, it, it ignited in them a love of the stuff.
very difficult to understand quite often, you know, why certain genres at certain times were repressed. My feeling is, is that generally speaking, what was approved of was the stuff that Stalin liked and understood. Mm. And like most dictators, they all seem to like four to the f four to the floor, simple, big bombastic stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it just seems to marching be marching music, really. yeah, Ma something yes. martial, yeah, something martial, yeah. something yeah. kind of uh, with with grouped choirs and stuff. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like I mean, it's a collectivist idea, though, isn't it? The it more is. people are involved in this thing, somehow or other, mm. it, it takes on a much more credibility rather than the sort of individualistic for the idea of a virtuoso soloist for example it seems you can see why that might be considered sort of counter-revolutionary when you're supposed to be part yeah. of this collective whole i think you've nailed it there actually i mean even now it's difficult to imagine say kimmel young isn't it listening to alice coltrane no, no it's just not <laughs> it's not going to happen is it i think that was it in a way it was this kind of the war between the individual or the individualist, as they would see it, um, and the collective. You write in the book as well about Maxim Gorky, mm. who's obviously a, uh, a big cultural influence on, on Russian mm. life as a, as a writer, mm. uh, you know, and promoting, I guess, a kind of proletarian folk f form of art, really, as the, as the truer form. But he, seem, he takes particularly against jazz, mm. you write in the book. Yeah, well, there's this famous kind of um, piece that he... Right, you know, where he describes it as the sort of beating of a, a giant phallus, you know, by a male stallion. And, and it's quite racist as well. You mm. can tell there's undertones of references to jungles and beasts and things. It, it seems obvious to me that any young person reading that would think, I want some of that, right? Not, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mustn't listen to that, you <laughs> yeah, know, because yeah. uh, Comrade Gorky, you know, doesn't like it. I suspect that Gorky, he may not have liked it, but I think he understood it because, in a way, he did get to the root of jazz somehow. It's kind of like it's the passion of it. With the intellectual, cultural, totalitarians, I think that they did understand jazz. They did understand the power of music, and they were afraid of it. I mean, there's another band form of music which is really referred to as sort of gypsy mm. music. Ro Russian romance suddenly mm. becomes, um, you know, verboten as mm. well. So I think in that case, you've got two things, is that it was mainly being made by, by that stage anyway, by Russian emigres. So people like Pyotr Lushenko, Konstantin Sokolsky, who were um, living outside the Soviet Union. So they were regarded as treacherous in themselves because they weren't living in the homeland. So that was one part of it. And the second part of it was that this Russian romance, Russian tango, these sort of sweeping, you know, uh, uh, dramatic sounds and very passionate it's called gypsy and it gives you some sort of idea about it um you know if you think of like a flamenco dancer or something you know it's got that kind of uh, extravagance and yeah i think that itself was another sign of you know wild passions which can get out of control you know unless they are controlled Distract and, and the worker for young people particularly they're going to arouse dangerous passions you know and it's all tied up with this kind of sexual repressiveness as well Oh, 
figure in, in your book and also in the, the film um, and covered by Mark Ormond in his album Orpheus in Exile is, is Vadim Kozin mm. who, who you write was a, you know, a very popular, a really beloved like a, mm. you know, a Frank Sinatra mm. for Russia who lives in some style in the Metropole mm. Hotel in Moscow while people are kind of ferreting around for turnips mm. you know, yeah. they're starving to death and you know, <laughs> being sent to the gulags uh, and mm. He then comes a cropper. Yeah, well, I think Mark pinpoints that, doesn't he? Is that inside the metropole, it was kind of champagne and caviar, and outside people were boiling shoes and, you know, to actually make soup to, to live off. So there was that. Um, of course, ostensibly, he was arrested and, you know, accused of being a sort of deviant pervert of his homosexuality. Um, but, you know, they'd known that he was gay since the 20s. And there's another theory, which is that either somebody had their eye on his money... But more, most likely, I think, is that he just become too famous and too beloved and only room for one star in the Soviet Union, and that was Stalin. Anybody whose fame threatened to sort of like compete with that of the great leader had to be got rid of. You mm. know? And I think that's what happened to, to Cozy. His story is, is tragic, but at the same time, you know, he was one of the lucky ones in a way because when he got to Magadan, um, he was met at the station, you know, with his guards, um, by the wife of the commandant of the camp where he was headed. And she basically took him aside because she was a huge fan of his music. Mm. And because of her intervention, and this is like the gold mining area, brutal stuff, you had a very short life span. And he was kept aside from that and was allowed to sort of perform and play in the camp orchestra mm. and it's a bizarre story but some of the gulags the the commandants would compete with each other for, and, and you know the various musicians who'd been sort of ripped from stages and sent <laughs> yeah. east they would sort of form these orchestras either for their own pleasure or as a sort of way of you know competing with other gulags so he managed to survive because mm. of that as did some other musicians and uh, even after it was all over and perestroika came right at the end of his life he was too broken to return to the sort of scenes of his former glory so he actually lived out his life in Magadan in the, in the town in the small apartment. Yeah. He is an artist whose work is all, is bootlegged mm. using mm. x-ray plates. We should probably say a bit about why x-ray plates and you know what so you can record onto many different types of surfaces. You know, we're used to shellac and vinyl. Um, both of those use pressing techniques. You know, it's a sort of I'm not quite sure what it is. It's some sort of, sort of black plasticky stuff, isn't it? And then you know, you press a master into it and you can you know stamp out lots and lots of copies of it right well th there's another way of recording which is that you something called a recording lathe which basically writes with a, or a steel point or a, a sapphire point and it scrapes an individual groove into the surface that's how they make dub plates right and uh, you know and it's the first part even of the of the record pressing process uh but those machines um which were invented really in the 30s for use by radio stations and journalists as a way of making an archive recording or a news report or recording a radio program. They manufactured kind of rubbery, soft stuff to write into. And of course, somebody, and maybe talk about that, discovered somewhere along the way that a very cheap way of doing that was to use recycled x-ray film, which is 
soft enough to scrape, uh, groove into, and it's firm enough to hold it. So it's just serendipity, really. Mm. And yeah. also that at that time, people were having a lot of x-rays for TB, and right. these plates are highly flammable. And yeah. so, the, so the hospital had to get rid of them. Yeah, so the Soviet Union, they couldn't keep them longer because there'd been some big conflagrations in, in, Russia, in mm. Soviet hospitals. So it's like, you've got to get rid of those things. Just as a note, by the way, you can record into all sorts of stuff. Um, I mean, I know somebody's recorded onto a pizza base. <laughs> and I know somebody in America, Michael Dixon, is recorded onto a hi-hat. <laughs> Heavy metal, obviously. Uh, didn't sound that good, apparently. But, but um, so th they, they were experimenting. And, and I think one of the main reasons of, of, of fusion X-rays is what you just referred to, is just the accessibility of it, mm. you know. And th in this book, you go into... The, the Hungarian story, mm. shall we say, which mm. I think was, was something that you discovered or went deeper in since uh, having done the first book. And in particular, is it Istvan Mackay, mm. who you suggest is possibly one of the pioneers of, of recording in this method? He's definitely one of the pioneers. I mean, we spec was this the person that came up with the idea of recording on an X-ray? It might be, because he wrote about it extensively in the 1930s and nobody as far as I can find out had written about it and he wrote about it in detail and he'd experimented with various other surfaces. The situation in, in Budapest in the 1930s was it was pre-communist uh, Hungary uh, and really he was using x-rays because as conflict started to gather in Europe uh, it became much more difficult and expensive to get the commercial discs that they would use to record. He was building his own recording machines, he was a talented sound engineer and he was getting employed by various people, in particular one person to make recordings of Bela Bartok, the Hungarian composer. He basically ran out of commercial discs, that was what happened and he experimented to find out what else he could use. You know. And he, but he also didn't he publish something pretty much you know how to do it yeah. kind of guide really. Which he did and then he became the centre of a kind of community of self recordists in Budapest and these people were not doing it because they were creating bootlegs because music was forbidden. They were doing it for the pleasure of it, you know, for the fun of it. I think at that time, you know, in the 20s and 30s, with the advent of radio, it was an exciting thing, mm. do you know what I mean? It was like magic, mm -hmm. and yeah. all around the world there were like magazines and about that, and I think just for the pleasure of it, these people uh, had a community of recording all sorts of stuff from radio and live um, onto extras, yeah. And you mentioned two other characters who were sort of Hungarian jazz fans, mm. Um, mm. Ivan Zagan and Radik Gabor. What were, what were they recording? Were, were they? Yeah, so there was a, there was a, there was a nascent Hungarian jazz scene, um, and in Budapest in particular. And for them, you know, these were jazz players who just really wanted to hear themselves what they sounded like. You know, it's a bit like a, a band now. They're making their first demo. You know, <laughs> um, it wasn't something that they, because the individual nature of recording uh, with the lathe, you know, that you could do to sell so that they were just wanting to make re recordings of what they sounded like live and so the person that we met um, in Budapest who's now sadly dead uh, had come, come across a cache of these recordings of of homegrown Hungarian jazz bands um, you know who'd just been recorded uh, by archivists for the for the sake of history if you like and so it's a very different thing but also equally exciting in a way and so if we move forward to the sort of post-war, mm. so the Cold War, the frosts of the Cold War mm. kind of, you know, come in. Mm. Um, the Americans are sort of countering, beaming radio beams into Soviet Union, uh, sort of music and propaganda, mm. and, the, and the 
KGB and are kind of doing their best to jam signals for, for this stuff. But but some of there seems to be in a, a couple of moments this international festival in 1957 mm. and then um, an American exhibition mm. in 1959, which again seems to open up a bit of a door to Ameri certainly American mm. music. Yeah, definitely. So as the Khrushchev's thaw is actually how it's described, this kind of thaw in relations between the Cold War uh, opponents, but also in terms of uh, at home in Soviet Union, it was a kind of cultural thaw. Obviously, you know, Stalin had died on the job. Nobody was brave enough to actually take him down. <laughs> I mean, the, the reason he died, of course, was is that his doctors were too afraid to go near him in case they got blamed for killing him. So that's actually why he died, which serves him right, of course, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> for terrifying yeah, exactly. everybody all the time. Uh, but, um, you know, Khrushchev comes to power and, you know, and, and you know, been waiting in the wings and then condemns um, much of what Stalin had been doing. Um, maybe saw the way the wind was blowing and, um, you know, ushered in this cultural thorn. The, the festivals that you talk about became part of that. The, the attitude towards jazz loosens up somewhat still not keen on improvisation um and as you pointed out earlier you know the the soloist you know is is not a not a figure that's held up in the soviet union for quite a long time uh, so it did start to change things yeah yeah, yeah. and you mentioned also the, there's a, a the stilyagis mm. who are i suppose sort of proto-russian Hipsters is mm. slightly the wrong word. I think it would mean style chaser, doesn't it? Or style yeah, style hunter. hunter. Style yeah, hunter. Style, or stylist. We might stylist. Say, yeah. yeah, it's almost like the modernist or the mods yes. in that in that yeah. vein. But the, but the who are these? These are a sort of generation of of, of young kids mm. who are, who are, have a an affinity with American style and music. Yeah, they appeared quite early, and I think the first reference to them is in Crocodile, Crocodile, as they would say, which is a satirical magazine um, published in the Soviet Union, very interesting magazine. Quite early on in the 40s, I think, somebody refers to this kind of peacock dressed, you know, character with, you know, loud colours and stuff, and he's a stilyagi, you know, he's a stylist, and uh, that was the first time this word was used, and it was like, you know, punk, goth, Beat, Nick. Incroyable you know, as well. The incroyable. Yeah. Hippies, you know, it's yeah. like sort of term of abuse which then gets adopted by the people it's aimed mm -hmm. at as a sort of, you know, as a, with, as a badge of honour. And yeah, they were young people who possibly had seen and heard American music in the war. And they, you know, they got smuggled magazines and, you know, a few records and stuff and were in love with American style. Of course, that was going on here too, wasn't it, in the UK? Yeah. But we had a lot more access to yeah. it. Uh, and they started dressing as much as they could in, like, American style, you know, getting their mums to kind of cut um, ties out of curtain materials and, <laughs> you know, extra thick soles put on shoes and stuff. All very bricolage, mm. homemade, DIY stuff. Uh, quite exaggerated, mm -hmm. uh, even by American standards. Mm. The I mean, it's like the, the swing teens in, uh, in sort of um, Germany as Nazi well. Nazi Germany, the swing youth, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the swing youth. Yeah, exactly. A very similar thing. Because it, first of all, they were interested in that sort of music, swing music. Rock and roll came a bit later. Um, and they really kind of went, carried on going until the early 60s, when by which time they were looking very dated, even in the Soviet Union, you know, because they didn't change that much. Some of them were rich kids, um, you know, the sons of daughters of diplomats or high-level apparatchniks. Some were working-class kids as well. It was across, you know, like youth culture is quite often across the class divisions, mm. isn't it? You know, mm -hmm. in easier times, they would meet on Nevsky Prospect, which they rechristened Broadway. 
<laughs> Call each other bud. Yeah. They chew gum made of paraffin wax, which sounds pretty disgusting. It sounds somewhat yeah, desperate. It sounds a bit desperate, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, that was in, you know, easier times. And, and you know, meat in secret in more mm. tough times. They were hunted down, actually, by the... Um, but the Komsomolsk, you know, the mm-hmm. Soviet youth patrol, voluntary youth patrols, these sort of like vicious boy scouts and girl guides who were on the lookout for scroungers and loungers and, you know, antisocial elements, as they called them. And, you know, and they were quite badly abused at times, you know, had their quiffs forcibly cut off and the girls branded as sluts and stuff. It could mm. get quite nasty, yeah. And you, you mentioned also this amazing propaganda film, The mm. the Happiness of Difficult Roads. Mm. It was a great title. Uh, it was a newsreel which would be shown before the main feature you know, in cinemas, and it's, it's lambasting these scrounger, sponger, hooligan types, you know, and contrasting them with the ideal Soviet youth, sort of doing um, wonderful athletic things with sort of firm muscles mm. and choreography with each other, yeah. of course, as we yeah. were talking before. Uh, and it's pretty heavy-handed stuff. And, and did it, but it didn't, probably didn't do much. didn't really work. I, mean, I think, no, it, well, maybe it, did, I think it worked in the sense that it got lots of young people more interested in rock and roll, <laughs> in a sense, because it's like, you know, you're, I think as a young person you're unlikely to see that stuff and think, oh, yeah, I want to be one of the kind of the well-behaved. Yeah. You know, yeah. some people would, but lots of others would think, I want a bit of that. Yeah. yeah, and what are they listening to, and how are they getting? I mean, you—the book includes interviews and mm. profiles of some mm. of some of the bootleggers, uh, Ruslan Bogoslovsky yeah. and Boris Tagan are yeah. the two names that spring to mind from from that sort of era. They're, they're certainly the ones that appear to have been. They were there right at the beginning, particularly Bogoslovsky, in terms of becoming a bootlegger. In Leningrad, in, in the sort of second half of the 40s, they formed this, uh, I'd call it an underground X-ray record company called the Golden Dog Gang, you know, and they were using home-built, te- you know, bootleg machines, which they, which Bogoslovsky built himself. He's obviously a bit of a technical whiz. And uh, they were music lovers and a bit entrepreneurial and a very anti-establishment. And so they started off really, I think, out of a passion for the music and spreading that to their friends and but there was such an appetite for what they were producing these bootlegs of you know uh, jazz and x-ray and for russian forbidden music uh, on x-ray that um, you know became a business full-time business mm. and with dealers and the network and like soft drugs basically you know and so in, in some ways they seem to be the catalyst and it started to spread from them to other people in Leningrad and then to to Moscow and Rostov and Kiev and but, other big but cities, Leningrad's so. important isn't it as well in the same way that Liverpool is important, Liverpool and Newcastle are important for the story of British rock and roll. Well, that's interesting. Tell me, I mean, I didn't know that Newcastle was, yeah. a, that was an important place too, was it? Yeah, for, for getting, you know, records from uh, blues records and stuff. Right, coming in, so, yeah. right. Well, the same thing, it's a port, so uh, you've got sailors coming and going, and particularly in the case of the Soviet Union, it's quite far from Moscow, from central control. It's near the West. Um, you, you know, you can, it's much easier to hear Western radio. Um, and for people coming and going, they can smuggle stuff in. So as a sort of source for music um, and the source for making copies of records, it was perfectly placed. And it's always had, I think, always had a St. Petersburg, then Leningrad, and even now as St. Petersburg, it's always had a kind of independent spirit. Like Liverpool and London. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. there's the sort of tension between them, isn't mm. there? Yeah. I mean, and they go to prison, Bogoslovsky at least, Twice, three times, three times, yeah. three yeah. times, yeah, yeah. First time they got um, sentenced, I think five years. Yeah, they come out and, and particularly in his case, um, just start again. And some of that's been away because they can't really do anything else. 
Yeah, I think if you've been to prison, it was, and you know, he was a talented engineer, possibly even intellectual person. So, but all those avenues of employment would have been closed to him after he served the prison sentence for being um, an antisocial element. So, yeah, there's that. But I think also within his case, he was just wasn't going to be told what to do, mm. uh, and he did seem to be on a kind of quest to make better and better sounding and looking records. Mm. He, he, you know, he's an innovator. And so the Golden Dog Gang, after the first rush of X-ray records, they were making these beautiful picture discs, you know, some of which were in the book. Um, and he kind of capped it all, really, and we still don't, couldn't work out how. He built a homemade record press in the bathroom of the shared apartment he was living in after his uh, second prison term. And um, uh, he worked out this technique of being able to, to get records Stalin and Lenin speeches, which you could buy very, very cheaply, heating the surface and flattening out the grooves and then pressing in it in a new record, new record yeah, yeah, onto them, yeah, which is a very dangerous thing to do. And some people might say a very stupid thing to do, particularly because he got caught. So, yeah, I mean, you also so. mentioned that um, people didn't necessarily always know what they were buying. Being given something that was supposed mm. to be, you know, Little Richard or, mm. you know, Elvis or, you know, mm. whatever. And you know, they'd put it on, and then <laughs> find themselves somewhat disappointed. Some waltz or something, yeah, yeah. So, well, there's two there's two aspects to that. That's absolutely true. So, um, the positive aspect of it was that sometimes um, people would track down a dealer, you know, in a dark alleyway, or a colonnade, or somewhere in particular, uh, and they might have heard about a particular tune, which may be, you know, um, Rock Around the Clock, for instance, right. Uh, and they want that record. Now, um, the dealer might not have that record. And if he sussed out this was a young, quite naive person, they would, but they would say, yeah, I've got that. I'll just go and get, get it for you and nip around the corner, take a pen out and write on there, rock around the clock, right, and come back. Now, quite a lot of those kids, you see, they might not have even heard the record. They mm. might have just heard of it. Yes, the, the, the pre-Spotify era makes it be something, <laughs> the, something that the merchandise beforehand. I mean, that's just, that just the case of yeah. buying records, isn't it? Wasn't yeah. it? Often you wouldn't know what it sounded like until you got home. Yeah. You're stuck with it. I'm going to listen you, to this album regardless, even though I hate it. And you might, or you might love it, you see. That yeah. was the other thing. So you might have, you might be looking, of course, you know, with Call Your Vassin's case, that worked out very well for him in one particular occasion. But, yeah, you might get some badly recorded Russian waltz or something, you know, which was not what you were intending at all. I think what happened is, is that from those first years when it was kind of driven by music, entrepreneurial music lovers, as uh, people realised that money could be made, more and more, um, more and more kind of rascally people got involved and they weren't very good at recording, they didn't really care, they just wanted to kind of turn a buck mm. or turn a ruble. So um, the sound quality was often terrible and, you know, they would just pass off any old crap on, on people, you know. Other people? took pride in it you know mm. they, they wanted to make good quality products and, and introduce people to music you know? yeah I mean you have this interviews with Mikhail Farinov yeah Mikhail Farafanov yeah Farafanov. <laughs> I apologise yeah. in advance to all uh, you know native Russian speakers mm. for the yeah. appalling pronunciation that I'm doing, <laughs> doing on these names yeah we're not the but, first uh, he speaks about 
Um, you know, wanting to, in a sense, to, to spread culture in a way, to be this force uh, for change. But he also does mention he's making money. Mm. How is the balance between this to be? Were the Soviet authorities right to be mm. anxious? That, you know, was this going to bring down the, the Soviet Union? Or were these, you know, was it mainly just, you know, uh, crooks taking advantage of, <laughs> of a terrible situation? I mean, it's a very good question. And it's, I pondered on it a lot. And I think that we do tend to think in a kind of binary way a little bit about like you're either like a music lover or you're a kind of entrepreneur you know what i mean or you're like you know you you love culture or you're sort of you love money you know and so you're you, either john peel or <laughs> you're simon cowell whereas in fact well particularly in the russian mind there's no need to distinguish between those two things you can be both mm. you know um or you're at least on a scale um and I think that were the authorities right in fearing this? In a way, yeah, I think they were because this was an expression, an early expression of youth culture uh, rebelling against the um, older generation um, who you know, were trying to dictate what people should listen to and love. So I think they did have something to fear there. They often couched it in terms of, you know, hooligans trying to bring the system down, which they weren't. They were often just wanted to listen to their own music, like yeah. all young people do. Mm-hmm. The the more sort of rascally uh, bandit types who were just in it for the money. But there's always been people like that, haven't yeah. there? You know, yeah. there's always been sort of dodgy car salesmen and stuff like, you know, we're going to rip people off. And, and you know, they are, they are genuinely antisocial in a way, you know. You mentioned him already, but Collier... Bassin, yeah. yeah. Bassin. He was referred to as the Beatles guy. Mm. He was famous, yeah. He was really famous in Russia as, because he'd been on TV a few times as the Beatles guy, and he and he was the number one Beatles fan. Is the other, other way he was described by himself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the self-appointed, self-appointed. Which actually, there were I think there were a few contenders for the role, uh, but Collier seemed to have won out by virtue of his devotion. You know, as we were saying earlier, you know. At, uh, you might not get what you expected when you bought an X-ray record. In his case, that definitely was. He'd, he'd been seeking out, I think, a little Richard record or something, and he brought back a record and played it on his mum's gramophone playing it, and it was a Beatles record. And, you know, it, it genuinely does seem to have caused an epiphany. You might call it a psychotic breakdown. <laughs> something happened to him. Um, and he, you know, devoted his life ever, since that moment to the moment he died a couple of years ago to the Beatles and you know and, and he lived it he just lived it he lived preaching the gospel of rock and roll and particularly of John Lennon sitting in the temple of John Lennon as he built it in in St. Petersburg you know surrounded by strange organic temples to the Beatles that he built and huge amounts of kind of miscellanea and and merch and stuff you know which people had given him in a sign pointing saying how many miles it was to Liverpool and pointing in the right direction and <laughs> playing Beatles, Beatles music you know mm. in, 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 in wreaths of smoke it was, it was quite something yeah and the Beatles I think you seem to suggest represented a, a, a particular problem for the Soviet authorities or, see, or appear to have done they seem to have been particularly mm. demonized or they were feared the effect they would have on the young was considered rather more extreme maybe even than Elvis possibly I think that was also the case in the West, though, wasn't it? I mean, you know, the Beatles, it's quite interesting with the Beatles in particular. What was it about them? Was it just that they were the first? Or, uh, mm. You know, that these four mop tops, um, you know, seemed to be like young gods to young people and, and causing this hysteria, particularly in young girls, mm. right? You know, and so that hysteria in the West was very alarming to mm. people, wasn't it? You know, and I don't know, really know what it was. We've, we've talked to various people about it. You know, what is it about the Beatles and about Beatles music, which was so 
transformatory and inspiring. And in the Soviet Union, that was absolutely the case. There was never going to be like Beatlemania because people couldn't, young people couldn't gather in that way in the concerts. But for people like Collier, you know, um, the Beatles seemed to represent another universe, a happier place, far from the re- the grey restraint of Leningrad. Uh, the oppression of that, where you could be free. You know, he talked about them in religious terms. One of the strange and a little bit sad things that happened in a conversation with him is that he said to me once, do you want to see my family album, which is a traditional thing in Russia. You'd have a kind of photo album of your ancestors, Mm. you know, your grandparents Mm -hmm. and great-parents and family and stuff. And I said, yeah, sure. And uh, I thought, I wouldn't mind seeing a picture of his long-suffering mother, you know, actually, (laughs) (laughs) who sort of spent all his dinner money on records, X-ray records. Uh, And uh, he opened it up, and it was all all the Beatles. It was just just the Beatles, particularly John Lennon. Yeah. Uh, And I was going through it, and I was like, wow, you know. And and I got partway through, and and in the page it said, John Lennon, my daddy, right? Mm. Uh, And I I didn't mean that literally, Mm -hmm. but he meant it in some sort of, you know, that's sort of almost, almost a spiritual sense. A spiritual sense, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said to him, uh, "Wow!" I said, "Cole, you know, I mean, you must have been absolutely devastated when it when he was he was he was murdered." And uh, he just looked at me and said, "Oh, he's not dead." And I was like, "Right, okay." And uh, and uh, he said he's living in northern Italy. <laughs> um, Doing what? <laughs> well, this is. I, I did, we sort of questioned him a bit about it, and um, it's basically seen that John Lennon had kind of like you know gone into some sort of spiritual retreats away from the world, mm. you know. Um, but m- more more interesting than that was is that not only that he'd been producing um, music ever since, and Collier pointed to his shelf and he had a whole row of CDRs mm. of uh, music that John Lennon had been producing over the last. Uh, Play any of it? Of course. So I said to him, that's amazing. Like, can we hear some? And he he was a bit reluctant. Maybe, I don't know whether one part of his mind was thinking, you know, they're taking the piss, which we weren't, or whether he had his own doubts, which he may have done, or maybe these were like precious things mm-hmm. which shouldn't be played the for the uninitiated. Yeah, yeah. But, but he, did put, he did put a couple of tracks on which I sneakily recorded on my phone in the room. And uh, guess what? Sounded exactly like John Lennon. It sounded yeah. like John Lennon in a room working out a song. And where um, had Collier sourced these recordings from? Well, he, apparently he had a there, was a... there was a sort of secret community of people who were connected with Lennon in northern Italy and <laughs> were passing these recordings <laughs> amongst themselves. I have got it so somewhere. You've heard it first on the Soho Radio I'm, that John Lennon is alive and well in, the, he's alive in northern well, Italy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still I'm, making music. Paul says, Paul, uh, you know, my collaborator in this whole endeavour, says that he thinks it sounds like a Japanese person mm. doing a really good impersonation of Lennon. <laughs> it's actually quite a good song. Paul, but Paul managed to, to, to well, he's, he's, surmise that. I suppose he's very familiar with Lennon and maybe with a little bit with the Japanese voice. But yeah, so it's it's actually a yeah. very nice Beatlesy sounding song. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, you also mm. talk about how they were, you know, they were mm. enforced haircuts and you mm. know, like, you couldn't grow your hair long under the Soviet. Yeah, I mean, Col- Collier told us about um, you know being. He was at the train station one day and just an ordinary citizen shouting at him and grabbing him by his sort of longish hair and dragging him along the platform by his hair you know then that was Mikhail Farafanov said you know he's traveling in the north um to sell records and he was on a bus and he was sort of dressed in an American raincoat because he was making a bit of money mm. 
and um, you know he was attacked on the bus and by this is by other Soviet citizens. It wasn't you know by the by the officials. So there was a kind of there there was a resistance to that mm. you know even at a, even at the ground level. Yeah. I mean, and how did um, Collier? Mm. I mean, his mother. I mean, he was he was using his dinner money to mm. to uh, um, acquire his drugs, which is something I did when I was a teenager <laughs> as well. I'd I'd get my dinner money and I'd have like a bag of crisps for lunch and pocket the rest of the money, and then uh, to the end of the week go and buy, noble, buy a record. Noble yeah. tradition, of <laughs> exactly. That. Yeah. Um, so you know, I have great sympathy for that, mm. but. How did he manage to hide his habit, or didn't he? I mean, was it an open secret, or? I mean, I don't think he could hide it in a sense. I think he was very close to his mum, and 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 you know, she was very much aware of his of Beatles obsession, certainly. And I think I got the impression he was an only child, and he was quite indulged as well. Mm. I mean, I mean he, he was a collector rather than a producer, wasn't he? Yes, yeah. He never he never made music or yeah. or or sold or made records. He was he was a, a collector and a consumer, you know, mm. and an advocate really, yeah. you know. So I suspect his mum was worried about it, and you know, was concerned for him, but was kind of indulgent of him. Another person, um, Igor Brill, who's a pianist, um, who. Uh, learnt his chops from X-ray records mm. by playing along with Boogie Woogie and stuff, mm. you know. Um, he said, I think, when he was young that um, his mum was so concerned about him buying these records that um, she wrote him a letter uh, about it saying, you know, my dear son, you know, I'm really concerned. He said the strange thing about it was that they shared a room. Mm. So she was in the same room when she wrote the letter and then just handed it to him. Yeah. <laughs> Was that? I mean, just, was she fearing it being bugged, or was it just possibly, yeah, or the neighbours hearing or something, or or maybe it was just that the sort of the seriousness of it, you mm. know what I mean? She want you know parental letter to, yeah. Uh, I mean, in uh, sense, the way with the child, letter, obviously his mother knew he had bootleg records and and vice versa. But how mm. you know how well known was the bootlegging among ordinary Russian citizens at the time, and and since I guess really once the arrival of reel to reel tape recorders, mm. which in a sense caused an end cause time on, on bone music and, and replaces a different form of, of bootlegging. 1964, 64 and 66, reel-to-reel tape recorders, which had been around, you know, since mm. the 40s, but, you know, they'd been completely inaccessible to ordinary citizens. And, um, and our, you know, part of Khrushchev's thaw was this liberalisation of people getting hold of, you know, consumer products, mm. you know, fridges and things like mm-hmm. that. I'm not sure about TVs, but... But, yeah, bizarrely, after all that punishment and persecution and propaganda they allowed people to have their own reel-to-reel tape recorders it seems nuts you know because I'd, what were they expecting people would do you know record speeches of soviet leaders off the radio no they immediately started to use them to share as we would say um you know the music they wanted to listen to mm. and, and and when you can record at home you know, at length 20 minutes aside and at quality you know, you, why would you bother with this yeah. an X-ray record? Three minutes of scruffy, crackly sounding <laughs> stuff, which you've got to go on the street to buy up a dodgy person. Yeah, you know, it just um, it just oh, virtually overnight just yeah. disappeared. Was there a trade in bootleg tapes? Yeah, massive. I mean, Troitsky, you know, Artemy Troitsky thinks that there was less than a million X-ray records ever made. It's difficult to quantify, but he reckons there was tens, if not hundreds, of millions of bootleg tapes mm. circulated. Uh, Rudy Fuchs, who's a, is in the book, um, you know, who sent to prison for bootlegging um later in the in the tape era you know he built up his record collection again and he would rent his entire record collection out to people for the afternoon and they so would they just tape, them, they yeah. tape it yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and then you know tapes of tapes you know second mm-hmm. generation and stuff and uh and then later on uh you know the the, the homegrown russian rock scene of the sort of early 70s 
um, they were making albums onto onto reel to reel, you know, which were then being copied. And some of those bands, like Aquarium and and stuff, they became underground stars entirely by the circulation of their music on reel to reel tapes. And you know, like huge, huge underground yeah. stars, yeah. And I mean, was there a similar profit motive behind doing some of those tapes as well? No, it was th in their case because this was still pre the era where you could, you know, you could have official concerts. Um, you know, all the concerts had to be underground. They were all broke, actually. Mm -hmm. They were mm -hmm. definitely for the love of it. They've since become well, you know, yeah. well to do and wealthy, but um, oh, some of them have. But um, at that time, that was the only only way to get their music out there so so people knew about them all over russia but you know had no chance of seeing them play and mm. there's no chance of them making an official record until much later and how well known was the phenomena of x-ray records but you know has has more information come about through your excavation of this phenomenon yeah i mean it, you know it's a source of sort of pride and, and puzzlement and i don't want to come across as you know puffing um, what paul and i uh, have done up but we do seem to have been the first people to dig deep into this in in Russia and in and in Hungary actually, particularly in Hungary actually. But um, there wasn't much known about it before. But I don't quite understand it. Still, it seemed to either be not regarded with any importance in Russia, or it was part of a rather shameful era. It was a dark history which should be kind of quickly forgotten about. So, when we did our exhibitions in in Russia. Um, Young people, by which I mean people under the age of 30, will come on. They didn't know, never heard about it. Mm. It was as startling to them as it might be to somebody here. Older people knew about it or vaguely remembered it, you know. But um, yeah. but also, I think an important thing to remember is, is that, that for the intelligentsia in, in Soviet Union, they despised it too, mm -hmm. even though they might secretly listen to jazz and stuff, because it was a street culture. Mm. You know, like smoking weed or something. Mm -hmm. People might look down on sort yeah. of that kind of street culture, graffiti. So, and as soon as there's no need for it, it was kind of shoveled under the carpet, mm. you know. And, I mean, you, you you write the book in a way that, obviously, we tended to have the assumption, obviously, that all the music they'd be attempting to bootleg would be Western. It would be the mm. Beatles, it would be Elvis, it would be, you know, Bill Haley or, mm. or Little Richard. But actually, you argue that, in fact, far more... You know, sort of Russian, you know, native music in a sense. Russian music was was bootlegged than the sort of uh, American or Western kind of import. This book, particularly compared with the first one, is goes into that because I think the true bone music is the Russian forbidden music. The music we talked about earlier, the forbidden emigre songs, the, the disgraced singers like Kozin, or the homegrown urban. Blues, you might even call it Soviet soul music, not in terms of its rhythms, but in terms of its its essence. You know, the songs sung in the gulags and in the trenches and in the kitchens and in the in the uh, courtyards behind the apartment blocks about real life in the Soviet mm. Union, life, you know, suffering and comic as well, and yeah. songs about criminals. It wasn't just all, all sorrow, um, and that stuff which showed real life and the dark underbelly of it was completely forbidden. So there was no opportunity to record it apart from you know, on X-ray and later on tape. Мне не сможет вернуть. 
So in a way, it's not as glamorous a story to the West in terms of Cold War politics. They wanted our great stuff, mm. right? They couldn't yep. get it. But it's a much more poignant story because this was uh, their own music, yeah. which was Being forbidden and repressed. Them, yeah. yeah, their own culture. They were separated from their own culture, mm. and I thought that was a much more tragic story, really. And obviously, with events in in Ukraine, censorship is obviously becoming another an issue once again in in Putin's Russia. How where do these where do you think these records sit in in some of that story? Is it a, a kind of an, an unfortunate chapter in a continuing series of repressions? Does it have anything to sort of tell us and the Russians themselves about mm. power and culture and control? It, yeah, what does that say, right? Mm. So certainly, I and most people I know, have, you know, and I've got many Russian friends, uh, were shocked not necessarily by the invasion of Ukraine, but at the speed at which Russia has unwound back into a kind of Soviet type of cultural repression. Mm. Um, Now, in terms of music, the horse has bolted because of the internet. So it's not really possible for, even if he wanted to, for uh, Putin to say, you know, censor styles of music. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all out there, right? But also I think that the music hasn't got the power maybe now that it had anyway mm-hmm. the cultural threat is from other sources maybe yeah news media and and maybe even you know theater and film and stuff like that so there's not an attempt as far as i'm aware to sort of you know stop western music or stop certain genres but uh, certainly any russian musicians who were even thinking about writing something either in their music or just in terms of making announcements at concerts stuff which was seen as anti-war would get in deep trouble and that's what's happened there's a guy famous old rocker who made some comments you know at a concert and was immediately arrested Mm. Um, and several of those kind of people have already left the country and some of them are actually making anti-war you know protest type songs the rappers mainly actually from abroad Mm. you know but they they couldn't do it in the country and that 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 stuff wouldn't be played so Kirill Serebnikov the film director and theatre director you know he seems to be continually under house arrest his productions are being cancelled and funding finance for any productions of anybody who's expressing anti-government sentiments is not going to happen you know so that's that kind of financial censorship Mm. Um, I mean and also there's the 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 channels as well, like television channels and that, which have been closed, and radio stations being yeah, closed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, 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 in that respect, in a way, we, you know, you can see some limitation on what mm. what people would hear mm. or see mm. on the basis of almost just that alone, wouldn't it? Yeah. Than, yeah. So, this was part. Second part of your question is, what do these records, these bone records, do this? Have they got anything to say about this? Yeah, I think they have. I mean, the the there's all there's going to be a small group of people and there's a small group of people inside Russia now who are protesting and are are, are you know spreading their own uh, culture it's so they're kind of testament to that this sort of indomitability of people when it comes to uh, finding a way you know and from acorns to grow oak trees and these records they didn't change the world they didn't they didn't bring down the Soviet system but their distribution led to distribution of bootlegs on reel to reel then on cassette and then via you know other means and and then people started to gather and do secret concerts and 
those secret concerts, you know, revealed something to, to young people in particular. And, it, you know, they had it, it had its effect. And mm, yeah. I'm sure that's gone on too. I have to say, so the, the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, and I th- completely condemn uh, what Russia have done, but it's a very complex, multifaceted, nuanced thing. And culturally, Russian and Ukraine overlap. Lots of, I've known several Russian friends who were born in the Ukraine and, you know, go well, between I mean, the two. It's, it's not, it's much more yeah, porous. Yeah, I mean, Kozin was... He was Ukrainian born, wasn't he as well? Lushenko so. was Ukrainian, yeah. yeah. And um, Alex Khan, my friend from the BBC, the Russian correspondent, you know, he's born in Ukraine but grew up in Leningrad. I mean, Lushenko, I think you say was was actually the the most bootlegged on on Bone. Mm. He appears more than anybody else. Uh, a wonderful singer as well, and um, you know, he, he had his own cabaret in Bucharest, and you know, where he where he entertained uh, the great and good, and uh, so he's regarded as a degenerate figure died in a Romanian prison camp in the end um, and um, uh, his he, his voice was described as you know tr- again you know transporting maybe an older generation of Soviet citizens to a kind of a beautiful other world mm. you know there was something in the quality mm-hmm. of his voice and I think you said that there are now growing market in bootleg bootlegs i.e. I, like fake fake x-ray uh, records yeah well when I, my, my sort of modest collection was mainly made in the early days when I could still grow in flea markets and Russia and find them, you know, for virtually nothing. And then what happened after the publication of the book, and then particularly after the exhibition in, in, in Moscow, is is that, quite rightly, they cottoned on, onto the So the, the flea markets have been sort of, you know, stripped, assets stripped of any uh, bone records, and they've been sold on the internet. And then I think maybe this, as the suppliers run out, there seem to be some various entrepreneurial Russians who are now making bootleg bootlegs, fake x-ray records. Because uh, I keep getting it, people keep writing to me saying, oh, I love your projects, and like, I got a record too, and they're sort of saying, it's like the doors, you know, like my fire, and it's like, that's not an original record. It can't be, you know, they stopped <laughs> making them in 64, so. Yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's the first clue, you know, Black Sabbath, you don't get Black Sabbath on an x-ray record, you know. <laughs> so, you know, and you can't, the, the Russians are ingenious, and yeah. You know, it's their culture, and it's all in the spirit of bootlegging, isn't it? Who, yeah. so who am I to complain? You know, I try to let people down gently, or say, "Oh, that's really great." You know, and it doesn't matter if people think it's what it is. Yeah, right? you know, they get exactly. they're, still, they're still getting an artifact, yes. aren't they? Of, yeah, yeah, of, of time, and it look, they look great. Yeah, so exactly. a genuine fake, a genuine fake, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and uh, like Orson Welles says, enough of fake. You know, does it really matter if you don't know? You know, no, <laughs> of course it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> but for those who would like to know more. The book is called Bone Music by Stephen Coates. It is published by Strange Attractor Press. And it's a very attractive volume with uh, great pictures and a sort of whole series of wonderful plates of the picture discs. And um, so well worth purchasing. Thanks yeah. very much, Travis. Pleasure, Stephen. Or are you supposed to say thanks very much to me? Thanks very much, Stephen. It was a pleasure, Travis. You're <laughs> <laughs> confused in our roles here all of a sudden. You? Travis, thanks very much. And um, this is your third appearance. Come back and do some more. You know, I mean, you're a countercultural figure in your own right. We should talk more about countercultural books, perhaps. Hmm. So that's it. I'm sure you've heard enough of my voice for today, so I'm going to keep this outro very short. Thanks for Travis for interviewing me about my new book. Thanks for listening. You can join us at bureauoflostculture.com. Thanks to Soho Radio. We'll see you, hear you next time for more tales from the underground. Brosnia,
меня без ухода гляди, расставаясь не будем угрюмы, чтобы не было все впереди. Не хочу я, чтобы новая сладкая возле губ. 